You're listening to episode number 15 of the Divorce Resource Guy podcast. If you don't know what parental alienation is, you better sit down for this one. Let's get to it. Cue the music. Welcome to the Divorce Resource Guy podcast with Jason Lavoy, aka the Divorce Resource Guy, a former divorce attorney turned divorce coach, talking about all things divorce, including the good, bad, and the ugly from an attorney's point of view. Remember, you're not alone. And now your host, Jason Lavoy. All right, welcome to yet another episode. Today we have a really great guest for you because we're covering a really serious topic, parental alienation. If you're not familiar with it, then definitely listen to the entire episode. Today's guest expert, Jennifer Harmon. She's an accomplished and awarded teacher. She's published many peer-reviewed articles and presented on the topic of parental alienation. Her areas of research uh, and expertise focus on the topic of power in relationships, power and how intimate partners influence each other for good and bad. For nearly the last decade, her primary focus has been on the study of parental alienation. Uh, Jennifer Harmon regularly conducts trainings for the legal and mental health professionals on this topic, parental alienation. She's served as an expert witness uh, in court, and she serves as a consultant on civil and criminal cases involving parental alienation and other forms of family violence. On a personal note, Dr. Harmon is actually a single mother of two amazing uh, boys and has personal experience with parental alienation, which she's going to share a little bit of with us uh, in this discussion. So let's get ready. Let's get right to it. It's my privilege to welcome Dr. Jennifer Harmon. Um, Perceptions and relationships and um, how um, partners influence each other. Um, But my my attention to this problem didn't really start until I... I initially became aware of it when I saw it happening to some people close to me. Um, And I was appalled when I saw the kinds of things that um, one of the parents was getting away with um, because I knew the other parent and knew that they were not the monster that they were portraying them to be. Um, And then when I remarried my husband, um, he was dealing with the same thing. (laughs) So of course then by association, I've, you know, as the step parents are always the evil parents, right? You know, but with yeah. alienation, it's, you know, a whole nother animal. So um, seeing, you know, having to deal with it with our relationship and his children and his ex-wife is, was uh, just a nightmare. And so in order to make sense of it, I tried to reach out and, and look to the research literature to find out what is this? You know, what, you know, I've seen it happen to other people. What kinds of information can I get to understand our experience? And, you know, even though there's been, you know, thousands of articles published on this or clinical documentation of it, I was, I was at first really happy to see that people were actually writing about it, but I was disappointed that there were no answers for me. Right. <laughs> um, and I think I get that a lot with people today. They go, oh my gosh, when they realize that there's a term for what they're experiencing, they get relief but then they become very demoralized when they realize there's still nothing that can help. Um, and so I, uh, I, you know, by doing that, I kind of then said, all right, I'm going to read everything I can. Like I think most parents do when they're going through this. Um, and I got familiar with some of the terminology and the great work that's been done by 
um, you know, other people so far on the topic. Um, but I'm a social psychologist. I'm not a clinician. I'm not a legal professional. Um, and that is typically how this problem has been approached. Um, and that makes sense because, you know, they're the people who are working with it and seeing it in the trenches, so to speak. And, um, but from a social psychological perspective as a person who does, I, I've designed and tested health interventions and large scale program evaluations. I wanted to see theoretically why this was happening. I wanted to see um, interventions that are designed to help parents that are based on theory and based on things that we know that it can explain why this is happening. And that's been absent, very largely absent. And so that's when I decided, well, to make or help me feel like I've got some control over what's happening in our own life, as well as to kind of get an understanding and feel like I'm contributing back, um, I decided to start studying it myself. So that's sort of how that evolved. <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell, right? Yeah. Now, is there a, uh, you know, a textbook definition for parental alienation? Um, we're starting to narrow in on one. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, it's, it's essentially when a child rejects or refuses to have a relationship with a parent due to the influence of another parent for illogical, untrue, or, or exaggerated reasons. That is the sort of, I guess, boiled down definition of what I use and what a lot of other people are using. Yeah, no, that sounds about right to me too. Um, and from my experience as an attorney dealing with it through the divorce process. So, so let's talk about it a little bit. And how does this, and how does this problem manifest itself? And, and where does it start? Well, it starts, you know, it can start while the parents are still together. I mean, there's parents that are being alienated and they haven't left the relationship. Um, most parents that I've interviewed and studied, um, they notice and reflect back that the alienation began well before the marriage ended. Um, and so it really begins, um, I mean, the way that I study this and, and what my work is pointing to is that this is a very severe form of family violence. Um, we just had a paper come out on Tuesday um, published in Psychological Bulletin about this, uh, where we show directly how parental alienating behaviors are both child abuse and intimate partner violence. We tend to think of it as mostly child abuse because, well, it is, um, but the intent of the behavior is really to hurt the other parent. You know, it's to destroy the relationship between the child and the other parent. And so in that case, it is intimate partner violence. Um, and if you know anything about the family violence literature or intimate partner violence literature, there's, there's several kinds of family or intimate partner violence. Um, there's some that are more um, what we call situational couple violence, where you have two partners who have fairly equal amounts of power um, it tends to be very reciprocal types of aggressive behaviors. Uh, and you see um, un unpredictable patterns. It's usually violence is just used as a way to kind of resolve a problem. Um, whereas with intimate partner terrorism, you see much more imbalanced power in the relationship. You see parents who, um, it's much more predictable. So you see patterns of violence and aggression that happen at different times, you know, and, and kind of, you see, you know, patterns that are, I guess, expected. So for example, you know, with that, you might, you know, you have a honeymoon phase and then the couple starts to build tension and then they blow up and have violence and then it 
reciprocate, you know, it just repeats. Um, and so what I was finding in my work is that these families where there's intimate or where there's parental alienation, they really resemble that intimate terrorism um, because you have one parent who really has a lot of control because um, it all comes down to power. And that's really, I think, where it all starts to get directly to your question um, is that you have a parent who really, for whatever reason, there's lots of them, um, wants to have control. They need all control. They need to control the child. They need to control the other parent. And that control is very abusive. And for a lot of reasons, I think it's very healthy to leave a relationship where that's happening because that parent usually is not trying to do anything to change that situation. Um, but by doing so, then the child is left in that situation, in the very abusive situation with no protection. Uh, and then the other parent is essentially pushed out and stripped of all their power. And so that's kind of where it starts. And that's the ultimate goal of the alienator is to strip the other parent of all power and control and have all of it and have the child to themselves um, and either erase them or continue to abuse them through that relationship with the child. And so it begins with power and the need for control. Um, and it just, it, it will never, that never ends for these parents. It's, it's always an, a desire of theirs. So. Right. Now you, you brought up a couple of terms that uh, one was actually new to me too, intimate family uh, terrorism. Yeah. Um, what is the definition of that? Um, well, that's when I describe kind of this very asymmetrical power dynamic. And that's usually when people think of, a, of intimate partner violence, that's what they usually think about. You think of a batterer, right? A batterer and a victim. And a lot of funding and a lot of research has been dedicated to studying, studying that kind of violence. Because it, it is a very, um, very um, uh, damaging kind of violence. You know, the, the consequences are really severe, right? Um, when, it, when it's happened. Um, and usually the person who's perpetrating that kind of violence has some pathology. They have, um, you know, personality disorders and they often don't take responsibility for their aggressive behaviors. Right. Um, and, and so and we have, you know, domestic violence shelters and other things designed for that kind of violence. And we have a lot of theories in psychology and social work and sociology that explain why that kind of power dynamic exists. But there's that other kind too, the situational couple violence, where you have uh, violence that happens that is just kind of a part of the relationship that's not really based on power dynamics. It's not based on, just based more on like couples who can't manage conflict very well. And they might throw something at each other or push each other as a way to try to stop the fight. Um, and that is a much more common kind of violence. In fact, you know, there's studies in colleges where over half of college students report that the relationships have that kind of violence. Um, it's not as severe, but it's much more, um, you see it everywhere. You know, it's, it's a lot of people have it in their relationships. So that's um, a physical, that's physical violence we're talking about. Well, a lot of physical, but there's a lot of social or a lot of psychological control as well. So psychological aggression um, is actually even more damaging than physical aggression. Right. Um, that psychological aggression and coercive it, psychological aggression um, in my new paper that we just published, we outline all the different ways that that takes place. And there's like eight or nine different ways that people use psychological aggression. Um, and intimate partner terrorists do that as well as parental alienators. So they'll use things like coercive control. They'll use expressive aggression where they're you know, yelling and screaming at them or trying to derogate them. 
Um, they'll exploit their vulnerability. You know, they'll take something that's a weakness of that parent because, you know, they were married. They know each other. <laughs> they know each other right. well. They know their weaknesses and they will do everything they can to exploit it and use against them. They know how, I always say they know how to push the buttons. Oh, that's exactly it. Yep. Um, and so, but that's a form of psychological aggression. So when you go and push somebody's buttons because you know how to do it, that's aggression. Uh, and so, so an intimate terrorist do that. They do it a lot. Uh, and so do um, for alienators. You know, so. So, so international, international, so intimate family terrorism that comprises both physical and emotional mental abuse, right? Yeah, there's a couple. So the way that intimate partner terrorism is defined is, yeah, you have psychological abuse, you have physical abuse. It also includes stalking, um, which a lot of alienators do as well. Uh, it includes um, uh, sexual abuse. It includes control over um, uh, sexual outcomes. It includes threats of abuse. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different things that fall underneath that term. And that's, I think, another reason why, I mean, intimate intimate partner violence in general is very difficult to define as is child abuse because there's so many ways you can, <laughs> there's so many things that par parents do right. do to each other that are aggressive. And so it's been a challenge. I mean, I think the most recent definitions that are coming out of um, um, the national centers for domestic violence, um, they have, they added stalking recently, I think in 2015 was the newest one. Um, but there's, you know, there's always different ways that you can cut and dice these behaviors. Um, but, um, but in our paper that we just published, we, we took the most recent categories and, and mapped on exactly what alienators do. And there's lots of examples of them doing the same things that people who do intimate partner terrorism do. So. That's great. Is, is this paper, um, accessible online? It is. I mean, if, if you don't have access to the paper, um, because usually there's a paywall, you know, um, I yeah. can get it because I'm an academic and you can get it at the library. Um, it's not open source, but, um, but, or it's not open access, but um, people can email me directly if they want to get a copy of the paper. Um, All right. Yeah, yeah if you don't I mind. Can't publicly distribute it, but I can personally distribute to people who are really interested in, in learning about it. So. Okay, yeah, that might be of interest to some of the listeners. And if, if you don't mind, at the end, I'll put in the show notes um, your email, if, if you're okay with that, then and maybe that would be an option. Um, yeah, yeah. Hopefully you don't get bombarded. Yeah, I, just <laughs> I just can't, yeah, I just can't post it, like, publicly or anything like that. But Yeah, I understand uh, that. But, I, you know, I, I know the goal is to have as much widespread distribution as we can. I want as many people to be able to see it. Um, that's always a challenge with publicly or publishing in academic journals. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure. So... Then just so I'm clear, and maybe other people are too, when we're talking parental alienation, that's just a form, it sounds like, of, you know, what would you call it? A form of intimate family terrorism, intimate partner violence, all of it? Yeah, we call it, we, we put it underneath a, just a global family violence because it's just any kind of aggression that's happening within a family system. So that can include child abuse and intimate partner terrorism. So we consider it um, another example of family violence, right? It kind of falls under that bigger umbrella. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's talk about it. Uh, you know, a, a little bit here specifically. Um, you know, how does what are some early signs of uh, parental alienation that people can look out for? Um. So a lot of the you know you know 
symptoms that you would look for are things that have been got kind of documented. I mean, early on, they were written about by Richard Gardner, but for the last few decades, there's been many studies that have documented the existence of those symptoms. So there is empirical evidence showing that children generally who are alienated have a lot of the symptoms that were originally identified by him. There's some other ones too that have been identified by other researchers or clinicians usually. Um, but in general, you're looking for things that like splitting or pathological splitting is a term where you see a child starting to show much more positive attitudes towards one parent and much more negative attitudes towards the other. And of course, these attitudes are not justified, right? They're not based on anything that that parent has actually really done, or they're greatly exaggerated from anything that they've ever done. Um, and so you see this kind of at mild levels, you see a, more of a preference for one parent over another, but then as, as the alienation becomes more severe, you see much greater splitting. You know, it's one person's all bad, one's all good. Um, and that's unique to alienated children. That's not something you see in children who are abused, like through you know physical abuse or, or sexual abuse. Um, children who are abused tend to have very ambivalent feelings towards the people who abuse them, and they don't reject them. Like they rare, they oftentimes are trying to do everything they can to try to repair that relationship. They want to be loved. You know, children inherently want to be loved by another parent, and right. you don't see that rejection. Um, and so the child then will also reject anybody associated with the person, the, the targeted parent. So that's something you also don't see with abused children. You know, if you're abused by somebody, you don't hate their parent, their, their sibling, or you don't hate their, you know, anybody else associated with them. Right, right. Uh, but these children do, like that's the spreading of animosity. So they'll spread, you know, if they, if they hate mom or dad, they also hate anybody associated with mom or dad. And is that because, how does that happen? Is that because the alienator, whoever, whoever that may be, is, is also kind of, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, I, I think of poisoning, you know, poisoning the, the child to also hate all known associates, for lack of a better term, or is that just a natural, um, like a natural byproduct of, of the alienating of the parent? It could be either or or both <laughs> um i mean sometimes yeah i mean you know sometimes you have parents who will tell the children that oh dad and his mom and their whole family are against us and you know and they'll say things directly like that other times psychologically the child you know some parents are very um subtle in their alienation it doesn't have to be direct bad mouthing and other things It'd just be really severe loyalty induction of the child and then the child, as a result, feels like they have to reject the other parent in order to maintain the love of the alienator. So it doesn't have to be explicit, horrible things that this parent's doing. A lot of times these parents can be very subtle. Um, and the child just learns over time that if they want any rewards or the love and affection from this parent, that they have to toe the line. Um, the parent could just get quiet and, and withdrawn if they talk positively about the other parent. And over time, this child learns that they shouldn't say anything, right? Or that they need to gradually start rejecting. Um, and so it, then what happens within that child is this child then starts to split, right? They're not just splitting an attitude towards mom or dad. They're splitting within themselves because those parents are part of their identity. They're, they're, they make up who they are. And so by rejecting this parent who they previously loved, 
they are rejecting part of themselves and, you know, hating part of themselves. And from a child's perspective, emotionally, this isn't some logical thing you can, you know, kind of really piece apart, but emotionally, you can think about from the perspective of a child, how they rationalize this. How do they come to terms with this? Because you have love for this parent and yet you are acting negatively towards them. You hate them. So you must really hate them. So it's like this dissonance that happens or this conflict, emotional and, and mental conflict in the child. They're not adults. They don't have the same cognitive abilities and capacities to think, you know, take other people's perspectives. They, they're not able to do that quite yet. Right. Um, they're not capable of doing that. You can't even, you can't teach a six-year-old how to take a, a perspective right. of, of an adult, you know, even, you know, and teenagers still struggle with it. You know, the brain does not stop developing until 25. Some adults have trouble with it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, some developmental research shows that these sometimes parents, even adults can't get past this, you know, kind of a stage of, they can't get to abstract reasoning where you can think much more, um, you know, kind of, you know, abstractly about things or where you think about kind of things more generally. Um, some people really struggle with that, even as adults. And so when we expect a child to do that, they can't. Um, and so emotionally, the child has to, you know, it's just easier. It's easier to just push everything away, right? It's just, it's, it's just it helps the child cope because it's so complex and so painful. It's just easier to push it out. Right. Um, and they will do anything to kind of keep that, that, because if they start to let that in again, now the child has to cope with all these very complex and painful feelings. Um, and so that's why they will hold on and fight tooth and nail to keep that parent away because it means trying to integrate this part of themselves that they've had to push away. Now, I mean, is parental alienation, is this like a newer phenomenon or has this been going on for, you know, longer than we realize, but we've, we haven't really, you know, coined the term. Well, it's been going on forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think with all human aggression, you're going to have that. I mean, human aggression, we've had it, you know, animals are aggressive with each other. Um, you know, we are too. But, um, and I think there's some really interesting research um, being done by um, evolutionary psychologists, such as David Buss, uh, where they talk about, um, you know, meat switching or, you know, kind of where you, after, you know, we're not, humans in general are not designed they're finding to have lifelong mates um usually people will have what we call serial monogamy like we have some you know, have a partner for about six seven years and then we move on to another partner um but through social conventions and other things we it's more adaptive to have a lifelong partner right right um, and stability and all that other so there's a lot of things that go into why we we don't do that all the time but if that's the case then obviously people have children and then they go on to another relationship. So they argue that there's some, probably something adaptive that happens. It changes the way that we view new romantic partners and past partners. And I don't know yet what, what that research is going to show as they start to do more work in that area. I think it's fascinating to think about why those, how those theories can apply to why we see these kinds of behaviors in parental alienation. You know, like, you know, it's, is it adaptive to keep an open relationship, co-parenting relationship with the other parent when you now have a new partner. Um, you know, I would think psychologically it is adaptive to do that, but uh, today, but who knows what it would have been like, you know, you know, I don't know, millions of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so that's kind of one theory. I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's, 
anyway, I, I, I just, I, there's, there's a lot of interesting theories, I think, that are, that can be applied from social psychology and, and other things to explain um, why this is or how long this has been going on and, and where it all originated from. Um, but it's not, it's nothing new. That's the point. It, no. Right. Yeah. And, I, and there is documentation in courts from t- hundreds of years ago, um, UK and other areas where they talk about children, you know, being poisoned by the other parent. Um, so there is a lot of documentation from a long time ago um, in, you know, case, the you know, legal cases. It didn't have the terminology, you know, the, the official term was applied until like 1985 or so is when the right. actual term was used. But it's been going on and no matter what you call it and a lot, you know, for a long time. (laughs) Now, is there, when we're talking about children and and when we're talking about parental alienation, we're talking about, you know, children here, right? But what, what's the typical age range that this happens in? Um, well, I mean, I think when we see it clinically, we're seeing it, you know, usually when these parents are divorcing and most people divorce when the kids are a little bit older, you know, not, not teenagers usually, but you'll see it, you know, five, six years old, but I mean, some parents, they divorce right away or while one parent's still pregnant. Right. Um, yeah, that happens. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, we find that, you know, it, you know, it's not that when is it most likely to happen? It's more like, when do you see children being most susceptible? Um, and so far the research indicates it tends to be more about teenage years, you know, preteen teenage years. Um, Usually, and that's largely because, you know, as children get a little bit older, they kind of, their, their cognitive skills are developing a bit more and they think they know a lot more than they do, especially right. teenagers. Um, teenagers in particular tend to be kind of most, you know, reticent in their beliefs so that they won't let them go. And they, um, they just, um, you know, they oftentimes will hear and hear the one side of the story and, um, don't have the same critical thinking skills that kids who are not alienated have. Um, and they're not, you know, encouraged to be, you know, thinking, you know, what the other person's perspective is. And so they're going to be hold more strongly to their beliefs and use more justifications for them. You know, younger children, they'll, they'll, you'll, you'll, they'll be alienated. You'll see other ways it manifests, but um they're usually kind of just parroting back what the other person says, you know, or what the parents been telling them. Um, they haven't typically often adopted it quite yet until they're a little bit older. Right. But cause I always wonder, you know, as an attorney, when, when you're dealing with it in a divorce context, you know, it, it comes up pretty, pretty quickly uh, in the process, you know, that this is an issue and this needs to be dealt with. Now, but I always wonder, and if the kids are a little bit older, like you said, I can't help but wonder, like, okay, this is going on now, and maybe it's ramped up because of the divorce, but has this been going on, you know, for a while before the divorce officially began? Because this doesn't just happen overnight, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's typically by the time they've gotten to court, it's gotten, you know, it's progressed really poorly right it's gotten to right. and there's i mean yeah there's I, i've worked and talked with so many parents who when they describe you know i ask them how did it all begin what are the first signs that you that you noticed um and they'll reflect back to well before the relationship ended and talk about how oftentimes like the other parent will take the kids out to dinner and not bring them 
They will um, put them to bed and refuse to let them be part of the bedtime activities. They will shut them out of information at school and other things already before the relationships ended. So they notice a, a gradual pulling away of this child in the relationship um, and poisoning of them, um, lo- creating loyalty and allegiance before they leave the relationship. And then it doesn't take long after the relationship. I mean, children, divorce is always hard on children and children will feel abandoned. They feel they're not, they don't have both parents there with them. They've, and if you have a parent who's interpreting this loss in, in a way that pitches the other person as an abandoner <laughs> or as someone who's abusive and then the child has very little contact with them it's, and the child is very hurt by the divorce already, it's going to just, you know, exasperate and accelerate the process. Right. So I'm trying to think where to go. There's so many places. I mean, you know, I could talk to you for hours about this. (laughs) I might have to have you back on, but so we have, let's say we're, cause my listeners are going through divorces, right? Um, And for people who think this may be an issue, um, I know unfortunately from, you know, litigating uh, some of these issues that, you know, the court's way to handle this. Well, I'm not sure the court knows how to handle this, to be honest with you, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but that's, that's another problem. But, you know, there's something, is there a point of no return? You know, like, what do you, what do you suggest if somebody thinks this is an issue? How, what do you suggest they do to, to handle it? Oh, well, right now, it's, I think it's a real uphill battle, and you have to have a lawyer who knows what they're doing. Yeah. They have to know what they're doing, and, and it takes a, it, these are extremely complex cases to litigate. Um, I think it'll get easier the more that other experts and other people become aware of the differentiation between parental alienation and estrangement. Um, estrangement would be where the child is, is rejecting a parent for legitimate reasons, you know, so like, if a parent was abusive, mm-hmm. if a parent had some mental illness issues or the things that interfered with their ability to parent, um, that or you know they have other problems that made their quality of parenting not fantastic, right? Um, it usually, you know, you know, in those cases, a child could have some resistance and rejection, but you don't see the the extreme kind of rejection like you see with alienation, right? So until people start to learn the difference and what to look for. Um, or it's going to be hard to litigate those cases, you know, because the courts aren't aware of what those are. Um, I've been doing this now for about seven or eight years and I can just hear a few tidbits about what somebody's saying. And I'm like, okay, I can tell what this is. Yeah. You know, you just start to learn to look for patterns. And once you know what those patterns are, it's not hard to pick it out. Um, but obviously as a researcher, as well as when I've served as an expert witness, I, you always have to rule out the alternative hypothesis. You know, the alternative hypothesis is that there could be estrangement going on and legitimate abuse, and you always need to rule that out. And when you are able to rule that out, then the alternative is alienation. Now, alienation is another form of abuse, but what that means is that the other parent is responsible for the abuse, not the one that's being rejected. Right. And and I, I know courts have trouble grappling with all this because especially with a, a teenage child um, and especially a, a teenager who's a little more developed. And I, when I mean developed, I mean just older, you know, like I'd say 15 and up. Yes. Um, 
courts are more inclined to listen to them, uh, you know, and, and hear what they have to say. And so if the damage is already done and a child is, you know, for all intents and purposes, alienated from one of the parents and the a judge is trying to interview that child and, and figure out what's really going on. And that child is, you know, adamant because he's already been poisoned or she poisoned that, you know, a judge doesn't know who to believe. And um, so it's very hard from the person who's fighting the alienation to, to prove what's going on. And you, you need somebody, not only an attorney who's um, experienced in litigating these issues, but also experts who are experienced uh, in these issues to, to really teach the court, you know, what is going on here, the dynamics at play and, and you know, and, and like how to, how to approach it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and to get your point about, is there a point of no return? No. I mean, you know, why would you leave a 17 year old with a sex offender? Okay. You know, the people who are doing alienation, this is a severe family violence. It's severe child abuse. The consequences on children are severe and they're long-term, they're traumatic. Um, it's just, they t- tend to look at, people who don't understand the phenomenon will look at the relationship between the alienator and the child and they'll think it looks healthy and really close, like they're best friends. Right. But what they don't understand is it's a very unhealthy attachment. Um, it's conditional. It's abusive in many ways. Um, and so... Um, so a naive person or person who doesn't have the training will not catch it. They will not understand it. And what they're essentially doing then is leaving this child in the relationship with an abusive person. Right. Um, and a teenager, obviously, you know, to put this in the hands of a teenager to make a decision. If you think, first of all, think this through a little bit, this teenager has had very little contact with the other parent. They hardly know anything about the other parent's side. They don't know what's happened. They, and there's no reason why they ever should. They should not be told anything about what's going on. This is out of, this is an adult decision, right? These are adult matters. Um, even a teenager at age 17, and even up to 18, it's, you know, I don't know everything that happened in my own parents' divorce, nor should I. And I'm glad I was never told anything. <laughs> right. Um, you never should tell them. It's not their job to then be put in a position to make a decision about their own future when A, they don't have all the information, and B, they're not old enough to understand the ramifications of that decision. And so to make a child testify about who they want to live with, why they don't want to be with the person, is an extremely abusive action. And I, I, don't even get me talking about how I get so upset that courts do this because, <laughs> because it's such an abusive practice to put a child yeah. in that position. And, and that's where the institutional alienation is really. So it's not just parental alienation. Parental alienation isn't just a consequence of parents doing it. Um, it's, it's, it's contributed by family members. It's contributed by social workers and doctors and psychologists and, and judges and lawyers and people who don't understand the problem. They contribute to it. So alienation is really a product of all of that. Right. And I, and I know judges, you know, for the most part have good intentions and, you know, it's like they don't know what else to do. So they, mm-hmm. if they feel yeah, the child's the old enough. They don't have the training and psychology and all that to, to do this. Yeah. I mean, it's. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. they're left. And this is part, I think, of the more larger institutional issues. But, you know, they're left with having at the end of the day to make decisions. Um, 
and that they're, pro- they're, not, they're not really equipped to, to do. And so they rely on experts like yourself um, to, to guide them. Um, but, at, you know, it's like getting a crash course in something. It, you know, they, you, can, you can't really teach them everything they need to know to, to, <laughs> no. to help the situation yeah. in, 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 a, in a divorce. Um, yeah. but that's what happens. Some countries they're starting to require, like I know in Israel and other places that require um, judges to do intensive training on these kinds of issues in order to even be eligible. Um, I think that kind of needs to happen for here. Um, you, yeah. know, you know, it's just, it has to happen. I mean, otherwise, if you don't have a base knowledge to work with, um, if you don't have a basic understanding of research, and granted, I mean, the research now, I think, is really exploding. I mean, I think we've got some really great um, new directions. We're learning a lot. Um, and now's a good time to sort of get into the literature and really see see what it is, what it's not. Um, so hopefully that'll change. Hopefully now um, things are starting to move forward a little bit more in that regard, but it's going to take a while. It's like, you know, moving a mountain. But. Uh, uh, yeah, everything seems to, to move at a snail's pace. But the point is, is that it's it's moving, um, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've given some, I've, I've done some trainings at um, some bar associations. And um, so it's, I think it's good. And I know some other people have started speaking to legislators, some other experts I know, and which is fantastic. I think it's starting to, people are starting to hear it and they, they're seeing enough of it and they're realizing that what they knew wasn't working <laughs> and so because yeah. they thought they knew about it and it's still happening then you know they probably didn't quite get it right so i think that i think it's starting to change right so let's talk um in the you know last few minutes we have here let's talk a little bit about because you said there's no point of no there's a there's there is no it's a double negative i think there is no no point of return <laughs> yeah you know what i mean right yeah. Um, a, yeah, yeah. So, but but I know, like in extreme situations, and, and I don't know if this is a, a universal term, but in New Jersey we call it uh, reunification therapy, mm-hmm. and that's you know the one of the court's ways of trying to repair the damage that's been done in, in these parental alienation cases. And but after you know a period of time and it changes all the time. Um, but it could be, you know, three months, six months, a year. If, if there's no sign of the, you know, this reunification therapy and, and that is and my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong. And what your understanding of this is, is that, you know, it's therapy with sometimes the, the child and both parents or sometimes just the child and the alienated parent. Um, I think that's more common, the way, but if the therapy is ineffective in a short period of time, then I think courts feel like, well, you know, what can we do? What do you do in that case? You know, is this child irreparably harmed? Yeah. So, yeah. So what to do about it has been an extremely problematic and controversial um, issue. So, um, and I've, I recently, I came back from a conference in um, London, um, the European Association for Parental Alienation Practitioners Conference in um, September, which is fascinating. They had people, um, you know, they had some fantastic models of effective interventions from Croatia um, and a few other places in Europe um, that, and and in London, there's some, um, you know, Family Separation Clinic has a great model, but, and there's a few other models here in the U.S. that are effective. 
Um, and what they have in common, they all have different protocols. They all kind of approach this a little bit differently on what they exactly do. However, the elements that they have in common that are effective are one, reversal of custody. Right. You have, because if, you know, if, and let me say why that's important. It's because the child is living with an abusive parent. <laughs> if we can, just, if you can get people to understand that, that parent is abusive. If that parent was physically abusive or sexually abusive, would we leave them in their custody? Like no. You would have better an eye. No. Yeah. So you have to in order, I mean, the, the ultimate goal is to have a relationship with both parents that are healthy. Okay. Both have a healthy relationship. That's the ultimate goal. It's not to take and punish the abuser. Okay. That's what I think is probably kind of a misconception for a lot of people. It's like, oh, let's just take their kids away. No. The goal is to repair the relationship with the person who the child's rejected and then rebuild and kind of have a healthy relationship with both parents. But you can't do that while the child is in the care of the abusive person. The last thing that parent wants is for that child to actually have a good relationship with the other parent. So that will, and you will never make progress with reunification if the living situation or the custody situation is such that the child is with the abuser. It won't happen. The second right. thing that they have in common is that there's a no contact order for at least 90 days. And the reason for this is the child needs some time to repair the relationship with the parent that they've rejected. And if it's undermined in any way, text messages, you know, phone calls that they snuck in, notes, you know, appearances at school, you know, that is going to completely undermine all progress. And is it traumatic for the child? Of course, it, it's traumatic. It's always traumatic. Everything's traumatic. You know, sure. divorce is traumatic. It's always traumatic. But you got to rip the Band-Aid off. You got to repair the relationship. And then you can heal from that, right? Otherwise, the child is continually in, in this abusive relationship forever, right? You know, it's like, it's traumatic to be in the abusive relationship. <laughs> it's traumatic to repair it. You have to think about what is going to be in the best long-term interest of the child, right? Mm-hmm. So those are the two key elements. Now you don't then, so there is aftercare then for the person who's doing the abuse. You know, so the person, the parent who's the alienated parent, obviously you want to repair the relationship with the child and the targeted parent, but you also then have to do something on the other side, educate the parent who's been doing the abuse and put restrictions on them. Therapy we found does not work for these parents. A lot of them are very narcissistic. Right. They're very psycho, you know, they have psychopathic tendencies on their borderline. Those are very difficult things to treat. And in fact, most practitioners who've tried to work with them, it's failed miserably. (laughs) They they take advantage of them. They try to sue them. I know people who've lost their entire practice because these parents have, you know, pretty much destroyed them. Um, So that won't work, um, unfortunately. And so the best strategies that have been done are aftercare where you work with these parents on family bridges has a good aftercare program uh, run by, um, for example, Dr. Yvonne uh, Purcell up in Toronto. She has a great protocol um, that she presented on in Australia recently. Um, so there's some great advances going on now on how to, how to do aftercare with these parents. Um, the ultimate goal of the, that aftercare is to do a psychoeducation, you know, really train, teach the parents about what impact these relate, these behaviors have on the child um, and put firm restrictions on them um, that, that it's not due to the therapist doing it, but the court has to work with that parent to do it. Um, this is completely, it will never work unless the court is heavily involved. The court has to put firm limits on the parent who's doing the abuse um, and, 
and have bite to those those things. So if the parent violates any of these things, that they act swiftly and they prevent the the abuse from happening again. But too often when courts don't do that and they just kind of say, all right, go to therapy, and then it fails and the child goes back to the alienating parent, now they've re-traumatized the child. And right. the, court, the court then has made it worse. But and, how- so, and so that is that is kind of, so the best practices across all of these programs are those key elements. Um, because you have to, and I, it, it makes sense that they're effective because they're treating it like a child abuse problem. Because it is child abuse and that's why it's working. If you treat it like, oh, let's just put both these parents into therapy together with the child, those don't work. In fact, no. the therapeutic models that have taken that approach, and I know there's professionals out there that will not like that I'm saying this, but they, don't, they won't work because you're dealing with an intimate terrorist. You're dealing with a parent who is very abusive. And why would you put a, a, a victim of abuse in the room with their abuser? Yeah, it, it really that. is. It really is the same, the same thinking as of a domestic violence. Yeah, because um, it is. It, it's the same. Because it, it, I mean, granted, you could do more, um, kind of that kind of approach, maybe in much more mild cases, you know, or cases where the parents are just in high conflict, um, where that would be more of a situational couple violence kind of situation where the parents have equal power. They don't get along all the time. They kind of fight, but. They're not actively alienating their children. They might do alienating behaviors, but they're not trying to undermine the relationship per se. You know, they might say bad things and they'll do some things that are not great, but it doesn't mean that they're actively trying to alienate the child. That would be more of a loyalty conflict situation for the child, right? The child's stuck in the middle. They feel like their parents don't get along. It's really stressful for a child, but it's a different, that's a completely different dynamic than alienation. Right. And so those kinds of interventions where you have, you know, a reunification therapy where you have like both parents in the room and you try to get them to work. That's, that's only indicated when you would have two parents in that kind of power dynamic, right? And alienation isn't at play, but if alienation is a concern and it's happening, you can't do that. I think that's really interesting. Um, And I agree a hundred percent with the change of custody that, that, Although drastic, that's what you need. You got to, like you said, rip off the Band-Aid and change the dynamic. Um, otherwise, it, it's not going to change. Um, or it's and, I've seen, and, it's, and I've seen this approach to get to the other age question again. Um, I, I have a colleague in Texas who has implemented the family, not, um, the family separation clinic model um, down in um, Texas. And they recently did a, a case where they reunified a 17-year-old. Ooh, it was really severe. And luckily the courts finally took action. Um, the child, I mean, the child threatened to kill himself. They threatened to run away, threatened to do everything that a lot of kids do when they're told that they have to reunify. Um, but they followed the protocol that was in place and did it. And now the child's living happily with his mother. Um, and for the last year and a half, I mean, so it's, wow. um, so it's never too late. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of times people think it's too late and can't know, but you know, if you ever interview a child who's been reunified with a parent years later and they tell you about what it was like back then, you'll know that they, they, they tell you, please, why, why didn't anybody see it? I had no power. I had no power to do anything. Nobody, somebody need to come in and help me. Yeah. Somebody outside needed to save me because they have no power to do anything. And so this is why courts need to do that. This is why we, they, we need people like us. They need lawyers. We need courts. We need therapists and people who understand this problem to help 
help these kids who are being abused. That's it. And, and it really comes down to, I think, um, Jennifer, the, the understanding what the problem is, because I think the biggest thing right now with courts is, you know, for them to understand what, what the problem is, because when you get into a, a divorce from a legal standpoint, you know, somebody files for divorce, the court, you know, treats every divorce the same at first. Um, and so they'll, they'll have a, you know, a preliminary hearing and, you know, what are, what are the issues? And one parent will, you know, the, the, the custody and parenting time issues will become apparent very quickly, but then courts deal with this all the time. So they, treat them all the same. And it's very hard, I think, for a court to differentiate, okay, this is a real, you know, alienation issue versus this is just a, you know, run of the mill, you know, parenting custody issue. Yeah. I think if there was more triage early on to identify it, then if you had said, if like, if you found out that this family has alienation going on, or it's potentially, you would obviously do then do a quick referral for a thorough evaluation to rule out estrangement, assess child abuse, because that's what this is. This is child abuse. You assess what kind of child abuse it is. <laughs> is this from which, which parent who's doing the abuse of this child, right? Um, if it's parental alienation, then the alienating parent's doing it. If it's estrangement, then the other parent's doing it. Um, then you don't send these parents to mediation. <laughs> that's the last no. thing you do. Right. This is, you know, you don't do that. You don't put a kid in a room with their bully. You don't do that. You exactly. Know, you, and so mediation, in fact, mediation will often make it worse because the alienating parent wants to do mediation. They want to make it look like they're being cooperative, but they have no intention of cooperating. They want to delay proceedings. They want to try to get some sort of advantage over the other parent because that's what they want. They want control. You know? And so if you can triage those folks, identify who they are ahead of time, you can avoid that and kind of get more immediate remedy for these families. So. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, you, you got to act sooner than later. Because mm-hmm. um, the longer it goes on, it, it just, the worse it gets and, the, and the, the more a court will get, I think, really just overwhelmed. Yeah, yep. yeah. And I think probably the most, you know, um, most important point here is if you're seeking some sort of legal remedy, um, you need to find a lawyer who knows how to handle this not understand, you know, like I'm a, I'm an expert witness. I, I've been an expert witness, but I'm not a clinician. I don't do custody evaluations. Um, and I've served on cases where lawyers kind of, I think aren't, aren't used to that kind of expert. <laughs> a lot of lawyers are only used to working with people like child custody evaluators. Right. And unless you're a, a, somebody who specializes in parental alienation, you won't know how to use somebody like myself, right? You know, you have to, you know, if you're just doing run of the mill kind of family, you know, litigation, you wouldn't need somebody like me, right? Or somebody who has more advanced knowledge about this kind of problem. Um, but you have, you know, and I've, I've sadly, you know, run into cases where that's the case and, you know, then then everybody blames the expert or they blame, you know, yeah. and it, whereas you know, it's just poor handling of the case. And so I think there are really good experts out there who can consult on cases. You don't have to go and hire the most expensive. They're willing to consult with your lawyer, you know. Um, they're willing to work with your lawyer and, and help your lawyer learn what to do. And now you've trained another lawyer on how to handle this, which is, which is a, a win-win, you know? Um, Absolutely. So when you are an expert witness, what, in what capacity are you testifying? Usually a subject matter expert. You know, I've, I've mostly come in and try to educate the court. Um, then it's up to the lawyer then to kind of draw connections between the, their own material and what I say. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I usually go in blind. You know, I don't know the case details of the case. Um, other times I've done court reviews of people's um, things and said what I think might be happening. You know, so I'll write, you know, I'm, you know, if I find that there's evidence that um, there could be that I have concerns about alienation, I'll say, well, you, you definitely still want to get this evaluated if there's concerns about this because this is child abuse. Um, but I'll sometimes do that usually before an evaluator is assigned to the case. So then that way the evaluator will come in and then confirm or disconfirm what I've found. Because obviously I haven't interviewed the kids. I haven't observed them, you know. Um, so usually a, that would be a, something I've done in the past. Other times I've been asked to critique a report of a custody evaluator. This is challenging because obviously I, you know, as somebody who's not appointed by the court, you can't interview everybody. <laughs> you know, you can't, you know, I, I don't right. have the authority to go in and say, oh, I want to talk to the kids, you know. And um, so ideally it would be something that the court would allow me to do. Um, and that's harder to do, especially if the court doesn't recognize alienation. Um, and so, um, and, you know, unfortunately, I think, you know, it's until courts become aware of kind of the different, you know, we need better assessment or better, I think, outlining about what is an effective assessment of alienation. Um, there are some standards that are being developed. Um, and so I think soon we will have that, which I think will help um, lawyers better be able to litig- or, you know, kind of examine evaluators who don't know what they're doing. <laughs> um, I'm working on a paper right now with a custody evaluator where we're trying to write out um, ex- explicitly like what you would have to look for if you're doing an evaluation um, and where you would look for it. Um, and so I think that that would be useful for lawyers because then they can say, well, if this evaluator didn't do that, <laughs> then, you know. Um, Absolutely. Because, you know, when a court, even if you, you know, start bringing up alienation, the court's going to appoint their own expert uh, to do a custody evaluation or or a an evaluation, and I, oftentimes I'm not so sure the the evaluator is qualified or looking for these things. Oh, and I've so, seen so many cases where the evaluator will actually actually document lots and lots of behaviors that only one parent is doing that are alienating behaviors and that are clearly being done over time. You know, which is another thing you have to look at: are these patterns of behaviors over time? And they'll maybe cite one or two things that the other parent is doing and yet still not conclude that alienation is happening. Even though they observe the kids, the kids have all the symptoms of alienation. They're rejecting the parent. They refuse to talk to them. They hate them. There's not, there's trivial reasons for the rejection and yet they still do not call it alienation. Um, Why not? Cause they, they clearly don't have the training for it or they'll say, Oh, I, I don't think alienation is happening because the parent is not saying anything bad to me about the other parent. I'm like, mm-hmm. that is the most ridiculous conclusion when you look in, in the light of everything else that they themselves have documented. Um, and sadly, when I've even testified in court on those kinds of critiques, the court says that I, my, my opinion is not valid because I myself have not interviewed them. And I've seen this, this, that to be the case with other experts who are even been in this field longer than me that courts still do not recognize that unless you are the actual evaluator, which I think is very unfortunate because it, it puts so much power in the hand of an evaluator that often has no training in this. Well, um, that's the thing, yeah. Yeah, and even when you point out their flaws as an expert on how they're doing this and what they're com- concluding with, the courts still put no value on that unless you yourself are the evaluator. And I think that that is a real serious problem because I don't think that would ever happen in criminal court. 
I don't think that would happen anywhere else that, you know, in criminal court, they would let you have an expert opinion. If you're in forensic psychology, you can have an expert opinion based on the data in front of you. Um, whereas in family court, they try to take that away from you. So I, I find that very frustrating as somebody who's done this. I'm, I'm, I'm a researcher. It's not, <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a professional expert witness, but you know, that's not my career, but, um, right. but that's what I've run into and noticed. And I find that it's very striking. And I've testified in criminal court too, in cases where there's been false allegations of abuse and it's night and day on how they treat experts and how they treat um, data and, and information. It's, it's, it's very kind of sad to me that that's so different. Yeah. And it's, it's so frustrating because what do you tell somebody dealing with this who you know, can't get the relevant data or the right evaluator um, in place. And, you know, it's, 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 it's almost, you get that feeling of uh, futility and, you know, as a lawyer, sometimes I, as you put up your hands, you're like, I don't know what to tell you. It's, it's, and it's so sad because yeah. you want to help. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 And I've seen like well, some lawyers, their egos kind of get in the way and then they blame the you know, their expert. I'm like, well, no, you just didn't handle your expert well enough. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> I can only answer questions that are asked of me. You know, I can't diagnose, I can't, you know, do things, but I can give you an ex, I can give you a pretty strong opinion about what I think is happening. Right. Uh, but it's still not definitive, obviously, unless I'm, but even clinic, clinical opinions are still opinions. They're not, you know, they're not infallible. They're not perfect. There's, no, there's, you know, but the job I think of a good lawyer in this case is to point out the weaknesses and the kinds of conclusions that can be drawn from those experts. Um, and so, yeah. yeah. And, and really hope you have a judge who's amenable to being educated too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that really varies by jurisdiction. It's getting oh, yeah. better. I've started to see some cases where, you know, there was some Supreme, even appellate court rulings like in Minnesota recently. Um, there are some, there is some change I think happening. I think the, probably the most progressive place where things are happening is Canada. Amazingly, um, they, they've made some really interesting, you know, really um, um, progressive kind of changes to their, the way that they're handling these cases. Um, obviously you can look to countries like Brazil where it's illegal and they made it criminal. So it's going to be, you know, I'm not sure how in practice that is to, to prosecute, but um, right but at least there are some places where people are starting to consider this. Um, I think we're seeing more progress in countries where that they've um, adopted the UN resolution on the rights of the child, or they have a, you know, a, there's um, these, these countries are have to consider the rights of the child and they consider this a child protection issue. And in those countries we're seeing, I think the most progress because they're, they're aligning their, their laws to be um, aligned with that. The United States has not signed that that um that un um resolution so right well like you said the work, work there's work to be done but yes. <laughs> uh hopefully we're heading in the right direction um jennifer thank you so much for coming on um i think this was really great hopefully everybody learned a little bit about uh parental alienation and and you know the kind of the dynamics at play here and uh like i said before there's so much to, to really dive into um hopefully i can have you on in the future and we can talk more Absolutely. All right. What did you think of that? That was one of the longer interviews that I, I usually do on these podcasts, but a lot of stuff to cover. If you haven't figured it out already, parental alienation is an, a serious uh, issue that comes up in divorces 
can have devastating and irreparable harm on the children uh, and even you know the spouse that the children are being alienated from uh, and we have to figure out a better way to handle this within the courts and educate the judges and attorneys who are dealing with these issues so that concludes yet another episode uh, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get the new episodes as they come out. Right now, they're coming out every other Tuesday. If you're interested in personal one-on-one divorce coaching with me to help you get through this difficult time, look through Divorce U. Uh, divorce University is my personal coaching services. You can reach them and find out more on my website, jasonlevoy.com. And other than that, stay tuned for the next episode. In the meantime, all I'm going to ask you to do is be strong, act confident, stay positive. As always, I'm Jason Lavoie, a.k.a. The Divorce Resource Guy, and I'll be seeing you real soon.